If I asked you, where are you from, what would you answer? Um, This past week, I preached at one of our sister churches in Cookville, Tennessee, and when I was milling around uh, introducing myself at the very beginning before the service began, an older gentleman asked me where I was from, and I said, Pleasant View, Jolton area, it's about 20 minutes northwest of Nashville. And he looked at me for a few seconds, uh, kind of up and down and then like that, and he said, I've been to Nashville before, where are you really from? I guess living here, as I said earlier, for the past 14 years has not really disguised that I'm not from here. I don't know how long I have to live here until I can answer truly that I'm from here. Probably not ever. But I answered that I was from the eastern part of Virginia, Virginia Beach, Norfolk area, and that seemed to satisfy his questions. But I guess if I had dipped back into my family tree anymore, I could have answered from about four different parts of North Carolina, because that's where my grandparents are from, and trusting off of the the work that, the lineage work that some of my family members have done, I myself have not done it. I guess I could have answered, well, I'm from Ireland, or I'm from England, or I'm from Germany. I, you know, uh, I've never been there myself. But when you ask somebody, where are you from, it could lend to a very generic kind of thing. It's an interesting question when you stop and think about where are you from. Do you remember a few years back, when the story hit the headlines that immigration and customs enforcement officers had mistakenly deported 70 U.S. citizens over a series of five years. I'm I'm certainly not criticizing them because just rereading those articles from 2020 again this week, it reminded how delicate and difficult our immigration system really is. I'm definitely not bringing up politics into all this. Every department makes mistakes. But I came across one individual story who was arrested with a large group of illegal immigrants and he was deported with them. He was literally flown to what was believed to be his country of origin and he was left there. The problem was was that he was a U.S. citizen and he'd never been in that country before. He He hardly knew the language and it was up to him to get his way back to America. Wow. That would be incredibly difficult. But I guess if you traced his lineage far enough, that was where he was from. If you can at all sympathize with such a story, you might begin to feel a bit of the pain that the Israelites are feeling in the book of Ezra, particularly in chapters 1 and 2. So let me catch you up to speed very quickly this morning. About 50 years prior a warring country named Babylon had besieged Jerusalem and overthrown it there in Judah, who the Babylonians didn't kill and they slew a ton of people. They took back to their country, some as slaves, but the majority of them, they were just citizens to kind of be adopted into Babylonian culture. This is called the captivity or the exile era in your Bible history. As the years pass, there's a a few kingdom upheavals through the decades until a man by the name of Cyrus the Great takes the stage. He comes to power in the Persian Empire, and he makes the proclamation that all citizens of all other countries that had been conquered, including Judah, they are allowed to go home again. It was, I'm sure, a time of great celebration. But there is one problem. Where is home? 
Where are you from? For the vast majority of the Jews who read Cyrus' decree plastered on walls and passed around in the city squares, Babylon was their home. They grew up here. To go back to Jerusalem was as foreign a thing to them as if I would move back to one of my grandparents' hometowns. I've never lived there a day in my life. That's not where I'm from. I can't go back there. I've never been there. The prospect of of feeling pressured to move away would almost be as alarming as being wrongfully deported. I begin to even sweat thinking about that. That language to them, it just wasn't their first language. They didn't know the unique customs that went with living in Jerusalem. Babylon was all they had ever really known. So what would they do? Where would they go? They had a choice in the matter. This decree, it's not coercive. No one is being deported. Would you stay home in Babylon or would you go home to Jerusalem? I want you to struggle with that a little bit this morning as you try to put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of these Jews. Would you stay home in Babylon, everything that you know and hold dear, or would you go home where you're told you are from? We'll skip ahead a little to the very end of Ezra chapter 2 this morning, and you'll see how it all went down. Verse 64 of Ezra chapter 2 gives us this summarization of all those who went back, who chose to go back to Jerusalem. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom they were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. You don't have to worry about the donkeys and camels and horses. Focus in on what I said earlier. When you total it all up, the citizens and servants, 49,897 people packed up and traveled to Jerusalem. They left exile and they went back to their hometown, regardless of if they've ever been there in their life. By comparison, that's about 8,000 more people than those who live in Cheatham County. So can you imagine a whole county in Tennessee just picking up and moving? You thought there was traffic on 24 this morning? You don't know the half of it. Why? Why did they pick up and go? I think that the deciding factor for them leaving Babylon and going back or just going to Jerusalem comes to us in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, if you mark in your Bibles, underline this phrase, with all whose spirits God had moved. They arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Did you hear the emphasis that I read there in that passage? God moved in their spirits. This is the exact same language, the exact same word even that's used earlier in the chapter in the book of Ezra. 
that made Cyrus the Great allow the Jews to go home. If you were to just skip back up to Ezra 1.1, midway through there it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom. The deciding factor of these Jews to go back home, to obey God and go back to Jerusalem, was that in many of them, if not all of them, God stirred him, he stirred them up, just as he had stirred Cyrus up to do his will. Now, this Hebrew word, this Hebrew word for stir here, it's actually used 80 times throughout the Old Testament. It's fairly descriptive. If I were to take it from 30,000 feet in the air, in vague terms, it's used to wake somebody up. Wake somebody up. It's used to incite someone to fight. Those who don't wake up this morning will be inciting me to fight. I'm just joking. And both of those carry a picture of shaking somebody out of doing nothing. That's what it means to stir. It's the alarm clock that blares. Can't you just hear the pitch of your alarm clock even now in your head? It makes you sit bolt upright. It's the general speech, or maybe in our terms, it's the, it's the coach's halftime pep talk, which are rarely peppy. It incites you to go out there and fight for all your worth. That's what it means for God to stir, to shake you awake, or to slap you on the helmet to get you out into battle. That's the language of stir here. But it even gets more descriptive than that. We could probably all surmise that that's what stir means, to shake awake. That's what we do with our kids every morning before school. Maybe not violently, hopefully not violently, but shaking them up to wake them, uh, to wake them up to get ready for school. The first time that this word stir is mentioned, however, in Scripture, ironically, is in the song that Moses sings over Israel, he composes it the same day and then sings it the same day. That guy was pretty good uh, in terms of lyrics, if you ask me. S centuries earlier, Moses wrote this song warning the children of Israel that they would one day rebel against God. You don't have to turn there in your copy of Scripture. It'll be on the screen. We're jumping in mid-verse to this song, but... In Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings about how God stirs his people. He says in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 32, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. You see, inherent to this language of stirring up is this strong sense of provision. You get a picture of God's watch care and tenderness over his people. We have a, a picture here of an eagle nestling its young, of providing for its young. But then eventually, because every eagle knows what its eaglet needs when it becomes mature, it then forces the birds out of its nest so they can fly. 
That's the great picture of what God has done with the children of Israel. He has guarded them in captivity. He has provided for their every need, even in a foreign land. But now it is time for them to get up out of captivity, get out of exile, and fly. Go back to the promised land. This has been the whole plan all along. It was not for you to stay in Babylon. Go. So this really is no gentle nudge. The alarm clock is on full volume. The general is at his all-time fever pitch. The eagle is pushing its young out of its nest. And there is an 85-foot drop of a chasm between the nest and the ground. They better do something. God is stirring His people into action. I kept coming back to this question though. What did it look like for God to stir His people. How can I know, in more tangible and modern terms, how can I know when God is stirring me? Because He is the same God. And He still stirs today. I hope you know that. Today we can stir up a bunch of emotion in our church services. We've all seen it before, if not in person, then in the thousands of videos that are produced every week. There's a guy up on stage. He's actually, if you were to really just stop and listen to what he's saying, he's actually speaking or preaching a bunch of absolute heretical nonsense. But he's backed with a synthesizer. (laughs) And it makes everything he says sound so good. Wow, yeah. Absolutely. I'll sow that seed and I'll give you a thousand dollars so you can buy that jet so I can get because there's an organ playing. Absolutely. It must be from God. If that's we can build up emotion. Too often I think we relegate the stirring of God to mere feeling. Let me go back and say that again because some of y'all have yet to be stirred awake this morning. Too often we regulate or we, we relegate the stirring of God to mere feeling. To where if we don't feel moved, if we don't have an emotional response, well, that must not be from God. Now, don't get me wrong. God created us as emotional beings. <laughs> he absolutely did. I don't think stirring here is devoid of emotion. Um, You walk into that locker room at halftime and emotion is running high. But do not mistake the stirring of God, or maybe I should say, do not mistake the lack of God stirring with mere feelings. Don't say, well, I just didn't feel the Spirit move today in church because there wasn't background music playing. Or I just didn't really feel the Lord was in the house because we didn't sing the songs that I liked. That's a weak view of God's stirring His people. That is kindergarten based on feeling. His work, God's work in His people's hearts, it is so much more concrete than mere feelings. Even a casual reading of this text, it provides us evidence of how God stirred back then, and I submit to you, He still stirs the same 
way today. Let me give them to you right up front. There's four of them. He stirs us through His Word. He stirs us through His people. He stirs us through His worship. And He stirs us using His Spirit. We're going to break down each and every one of those this morning from this passage of Scripture. First off, God's Word. He stirs us with His Word. We really hit on it last week, but it's worth repeating. The captive children of Israel knew without a shadow of a doubt that one day, God was going to free them from captivity. Take it to the bank. They knew it was going to happen because of the words of prophecy. They had read it, heard it before. They might not have believed it all at the same time that the sermon was preached, but it was very apparent to them that God was moving in their exile. Last week, I I honed in on the prophet Jeremiah and his explicit preaching to God's people that they would be carried away to Babylon for 70 years. They heard the word of God. And for 70 years, they would be in exile and they'd be disciplined. We touched on Isaiah's detailed prophecy even 120 years before Cyrus was born that a man by that name would come anointed by God and set the Jews free. Briefly, I touched on the ministries of Amos, Hosea, Nahum, Micah, and Joel. These prophets warned Israel at every stage. They heard God's word and it stirred them. They might have disobeyed and they might have tried to push it down, but it stirred them. It incited them. Often, it incited them to kill the prophet who was preaching, but it still stirred. God's method of stirring His people today is not at all different from them. He still uses His Word to awaken us. 500 years ago, there was a German monk who was trying to rectify in his mind what it looks like for a Christian to live in this world. Martin Luther In the 1500s, early 1500s, he was struggling with many of the ritualistic practices that the church of his day was touting as what made someone spiritual or accepted by God. And he knew that there must be more than staring at relics, staring at the bones of saints or the supposed bones of saints. He knew that there must be more than purchasing, buying indulgences for sin that you had committed so that you could get out of hell kind of these, these cards that they would sell. In seeing how distraught he was, there was a fellow priest who comes alongside him and he for the first time gives Luther a copy of the New Testament and tells him to read. Luther read the book of Romans. He is only 17 verses in into that deep theological treatise when Luther found what he was looking for. He comes across the verse that quotes from the Old Testament, ironically, the just shall live by faith. 
It was a phrase that kept resounding in his mind. Christians are justified by faith. We live by faith. That simple truth, that short sentence, it lit the powder keg of the Protestant Reformation, bringing back a love for simple Christianity and dependence upon God's word, all because some little unknown German monk in some far-off corner of the kingdom at that time read this phrase and it lit a fire under him. The just live by faith. That's what the Word of God does. You might look at New Hope's schedule of services this week and you might think, man, that is a, that's, that's pretty heavy on preaching and teaching. Four services a week, multiple Bible classes to choose from on Sunday morning, several Bible studies going on throughout the week, whether here or in homes. That's, that's a bit much, don't you think? No. We believe in the power of God's Word to stir the heart of God's people to do His work. And so what does it mean for the people of God to be stirred by God? They hear the Word of God. Are you stirred this morning through the Word? If not, you've got to ask yourself, do I need to be awakened or do I need to be revived? He stirs us with His Word. He also stirs us with His people. Just as important as God's Word moving in hearts and spirits of His people. God uses His people to stir us up. Go back to that number of people that we read in Ezra 2 who decided to go back to Jerusalem. There was 49,897 people who went to Jerusalem, who left Babylon to go to Jerusalem. I don't think we can really get our heads around the power of that kind of influence as 50 thousand of our neighbors and family members begin to pack up and head out. Dad, Dad, what's, what's our uncle doing down the road? He's, he's going to Jerusalem, son. Dad, why aren't we going to Jerusalem? I, I don't think we can discount the stirring of God's people by other people. I'm certain that there must have been some people who were being stirred by God through His Word, knowing that the Lord was doing something big in their nation, but they were still having second thoughts, some misgivings about actually traveling back to Jerusalem. Seeing that many people, nearly 50,000, packing their wagons, had to push a few of them, maybe not a ton, but it had to push a few of them over the edge and say, wait up, I'm coming too. So let me talk to the students in our congregation this morning for a moment. I want you to hear this point. Never discount the positive spiritual influence that you can have in your university or school. Never discount that. I am here today because the Lord blessed me with a circle of friends all throughout my life who were willing and wanting to do the will of God. It may have been some that I looked up to as an underclassman when I was younger. 
others who were in the same year as me, but I knew what the Lord expected and I, what He wanted out of me largely because of the influence of the people that the Lord surrounded me with. I think that's a good application of the text, but I hope you know that middle schools and colleges are not mentioned in Ezra chapter 1. What is mentioned in the text are dads. I'll just let this simmer for just a second. Ezra 1.5 And the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, priests the Levites, with all those spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I know that the word patriarchy is venomous these days. There certainly have been some blasphemous perversions of male leadership which have led, which have hit the news of the last decade. But hear me. The perversion or the fake does not negate the biblical teaching, dads, you are the pastor of your home. Your wife's, your children's spiritual development is left not to me, not your pastor, not their Sunday school teacher, not their women's Bible study group. It is left to you, Dad. Do not abuse that calling and neither shirk that responsibility. My prayer for every dad at New Hope is that they make Scripture reading and prayer together so common in their households that the kids will notice the occasional day when it is skipped. Aren't we going to read? Why haven't we prayed? Hear me, dads. Be, be personal, purposeful, and loving with your children's walk with Christ. You, the Lord has placed you in their life to stir them to live for God. Someone had to make the decision to go back to the land of promise. I'm sure that there were family meetings, there were discussions that had to be had, but the choice had to be made. And verse 5 said the fathers were the ones who led the way. That is not the case with the modern church in America today. Not by a long shot. I can show you statistic after desperate statistic that tells us it's not the case. If you were to continue the text through, though, you'd see that not everyone left Babylon. In fact, there's quite a few who stayed behind. But they're still involved in the mission of going to Jerusalem. They don't pack up and go, but they play another role. Look at verse 6 of Ezra chapter 1. All those who were around them, those leaving to go to Jerusalem, encouraged them 
with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. I hope you you see the similarity here. This is so similar to that first exodus in Egypt where the neighbors of the Jews who were leaving to go to the promised land, they blessed these once slaves. They blessed them with gifts. (laughs) Scholars tell us that a a faithful reading of verse 6 is that these gifts of gold and livestock and precious things, they were given by Jews and Babylonians alike who were were deciding to send these Jews going to Jerusalem on on their way. We see how God uses others to stir the hearts of his people. Some were Jews who, for whatever reason, could not or would not go back to Jerusalem, but they still wanted to be involved in the mission. Some were Babylonians who had no place in the commissioning, but just had relationships fostered with their neighbors so strong over the years that they wanted to bless them as they went back to their homeland. Their gift was an affirmation of what God was calling them to do. Hear me. God uses His people to stir His people. And all this, I've yet to really even mention why anyone would go to Jerusalem, though. Have you stopped to think about that? Particularly among those who grew up in Babylon, who really had no personal identity with the city of their grandparents. What was the significance here? Couldn't God be worshipped anywhere? Everywhere? Colin Smith underlines this point relating that there really was no condemnation here in this passage against those who decided to stay in Babylon. I can't find it in the text. In fact, the Jews who remained actually further developed the worship of the one true God. It's obvious that they stayed true to Jehovah. Otherwise, we'd be missing accounts of Esther and Nehemiah, which come a few decades after Ezra 1 and 2. Some stayed. It seems as though there were some Jews who were not stirred to go up to Jerusalem. So what was the thing that stirred those to go? Thirdly, the worship of God is worship. Why would anybody leave the security and convenience of living in Babylon to to go back and resettle and rebuild Jerusalem? Very early in Scripture, the Lord had promised Israel that there would be a place. I don't understand it all. I can't explain it all. You can talk to me about it afterwards and you can explain it to me if you want to. Early in Scripture, God said that there would be a place more special, more real, more potent than all others where He would take up residence and He would dwell in that place. Deuteronomy 12.5 says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put His name for His dwelling place and there you shall go. This place mentioned Undisputed among all the tribes of Judah was Jerusalem. You see, an integral part of God stirring His people was their desire to worship Him in this place. I'll admit it, I think there's a heavy dose of nostalgia going on here. But these nearly 50,000 Israelites 
wanted to see God's name raised and praised in Jerusalem once more. The city was burned, the walls were toppled, the the temple was a trash heap, and it grieved the hearts of God's people that it was so. In returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, reinstating worship of Jehovah in that area, they would proclaim to all the world, our God is alive. I want to be a part of this. To affirm all of this, Cyrus, he does the unthinkable. Not only does he just allow the Israelites to go home, not only does he encourage people to give to them, to them gifts, like in verse 4, but in verses 7 through 11, Cyrus also opens his state treasury and he returns all the plunder that the Babylonian kings had stolen as spoils of war from out of the temple of God. He gives it to them. Every fork and spoon is returned to the people of God. These instruments, numbering 5,400 instruments, made it possible for them to go back to Jerusalem and begin worshiping the Lord as he had prescribed in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. There in Babylon, these people had this yearning, this unsettled, unsatisfied desire in their hearts to worship God, and it stirred them. And Cyrus giving back these holy articles and instruments made it all the more real. So the the idea of worshiping God truly stirred them. Look, this may have more application than what you first think. You're saying, Corey, what in the world? How can I, an American citizen in 2023, get anything out of the returned plunder of the temple of God in Jerusalem? I am convinced that there are some in this room who feel a similar, unsettled yearning. You have tried to satisfy that longing in your heart with everything. Relationships, Substance, materialism, you name it. And still, you are unsettled. Could it be that the Lord is stirring you to worship Him? Forget this American dream that so quickly moves the goalpost to where you get the two cars and then you got to get a better two cars. You get the big house and then you got to get a bigger house. And then you got to add on to the garage. And then you got to build bigger barns and more barns. Forget this. That thing that you're missing, that thing that is stirring in your heart, is true, sincere worship of the one and only God. It is stirring you. And yet you are falling on the false security of selfish ambition not following God, and He is desiring you to lead and follow Him. Leave the familiar and chase after Him. I hope you'll see that in each of these ways that the Lord has stirred His Word, His people, His worship, that there is an element, there's an overarching way in which the Spirit stirs our heart, or that the Lord stirs our hearts, and that is 
His Spirit. So I got a few of you angry at me when I started talking about emotionalism, so let's go back to that idea. Let's talk about feelings. I know I spoke against it, but here I want to encourage you. It is very likely that right here, right now, you feel the Lord stirring you to obey Him. I want you to know that that is something more than emotion. Emotion is surface level. The Spirit stirring your heart goes so much deeper than chords on a piano or the gentle strumming of an instrument. It is the Holy Spirit of God convicting you of sin, pointing out where you failed, but also encouraging you, stirring you to give in and ask forgiveness for that sin. There is that inner struggle in some. Some of you have testified of it this week in conversation with me. I wonder if in that inner struggle you're feeling right now, there are also excuses battling as to why I won't give in or I won't obey the stirring of God. They're probably very similar to the ones that the Israelites used, those who felt the stirring of the Spirit there in Ezra 1 and 2 and decided to stay in Babylon. Let me give you a few. Excuse. I'll wait. I'll wait. God hasn't called me to be a pioneer. I'll let others go before me, get everything ready, and then I'll come in. I'll wait. There's an element of truth to this. History tells us that this is just the first of three waves of Israelites that are going to pack up and go to Jerusalem. 50,000 people might seem like a lot, a whole county worth of people, but the, real, the reality is, is that Bible scholars tell us that that's probably only one in six of the Jews living in Babylon. They looked around and they saw the quarter of a million Jews who were staying in Babylon. And they assumed, I'll have another chance. I'll catch the next train. You are not promised that second chance. There was a poet by the name of James Weldon Johnson. He actually worked at Fisk University here in Nashville. He warned about the dangers of staying in Babylon with the crowd. Young man, young man, you're never lonesome in Babylon. You can always join a crowd in Babylon. Young man, young man, you can never be alone in Babylon. Alone with your Jesus in Babylon. You can never find a place, a lonesome place, a lonesome place to go down on your knees and talk with your God in Babylon. You're always in a crowd in Babylon. You think you are safe in Babylon because there's there's a quarter million people of God still here. 
And what Johnson is saying, no, no. You might be surrounded by people, but you will never feel the sense of being alone with Jesus when you stay in Babylon. It may seem easy to stay where the majority is, but you will find that the majority will quickly deafen your ears to the call of God to where I'll wait becomes tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and you're going to end up like one of these godly saints today who had wished that they would have made a decision to follow Jesus decades ago. I'll wait. And tomorrow never comes. Excuse number two. I'm at ease here. I'm at ease here. I mean, Jeremiah had told them in Jeremiah 29, 5-7 to plant vineyards, to build houses, to marry women, to seek peace with their local officials in Babylon while they were there in captivity. And that seems like that was absolutely the case. But all of that All of those relationships, all of that planting and building, it was supposed to remind them of life in Canaan. But what ended up happening was it rooted them to their spot. I hope you understand this. Everything good here in this world that you are experiencing right now is a mere shadow of what life is with God. That marriage that you find so much value in and praise God you do, that marriage, it is supposed to point you to true life and love with Christ. That job, as fulfilling as you think it may be, it is supposed to push you to seek true fulfillment. You're just living in Babylon without actually going home. Excuse number three. That's not really my home. It's not really where I'm from. Like me telling the the man that I'm from Ireland, I'm not from Ireland. That's not where I'm from. I am convinced that there were some in Babylon living in exile who looked at the prospect of going back to Jerusalem and said, that's not, I'm not from there. grandkids who've grown up in exile in Babylon, they don't see Jerusalem as their true home. They're Babylonians first and then they're God's people. Hear me. This is the biggest lie that Satan could ever sell you. You were created to be with Christ. C.S. Lewis stated this succinctly in his masterwork, Mere Christianity, when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. This is not your home. It's good. God has given us goodness here on this earth, but you are created. As Peter tells us, you are made sojourners and pilgrims. This is not our home. You say, okay, Corey, you have mixed metaphors so much. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to pack up and head to Jerusalem? Is the, is the call to action, is the invitation this morning to get your passport and go to Jerusalem today? Absolutely not. But it is rooted 
in the idea of building up a temple to worship the Lord. Here's the New Testament application of Ezra 1 and 2, honestly, but just first part of Ezra chapter 1. Peter tells us that the whole picture of tabernacles and temples was just a shadow of the Lord taking up residence in his church. That when God came down in the temple and in the tabernacle, when he filled the place, that was a mere picture of what God was going to do in his church. That's why Paul said, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You realize that these walls do not encompass the church, right? You know that. I hope you do. The church is us. Every blood-bought child of God. The children of Israel were being called to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple in spite of their comfort or their personal ambition. And our calling is so very similar. If you haven't heard one word I've said this morning, hear me on this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. What Melissa read at the very beginning of our service this morning, she encouraged us, Peter encouraged us, the Spirit stirred in us to come to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are called to do something much bigger than lay block for a temple of God. You yourself, Christian, you are a living stone pieced together building the church of God on earth. The people of God allow God to use them to stir up others for Him through His Word, through His worship, and through His Spirit. Here's where it gets really good. I read this week that every tabernacle, every temple of God, was made from the victory plunder of other nations. Hang with me. You look in Exodus, and the Egyptians gave the Israelites all that gold to build the tabernacle. You look in 1 Kings, that temple of Solomon that Solomon built, it was built from all that plunder that David had won in battle throughout the years when he was reigning in, in Israel or in Judah. Here in Ezra, this new temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which will be built in the coming chapters, it will be fashioned with all of the gifts from the Babylonians. Christian, you too, you living stones, you fit together, you are built up for the church. When Jesus conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, he plundered the enemy, literally scripture says, took captivity captive, and he has now distributed his gifts among us for the equipping of the saints. And I gotta ask you, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to go home and build the church of God? It all comes down to this. Where are you from? Would you go back? More importantly than putting yourself in the shoes of these Israelites from millennia ago, will you obey the stirring of God's Spirit today? Or will you lay up one of those lousy excuses? And just stay numbing yourself to God's stirring in your life. Scripture 
encourages, but also warns. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Life's a vapor. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.